This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. I am really excited to be joined tonight by Major Tom Schumann, who is coming to us from Rhode Island. I um, first got connected with Tom um, around uh, the knock at the door and the book that I wrote with uh, Heather Kelly and Amy Looney and and Tom served with Robert, with Heather's uh, husband and um, started following Tom and his um, Instagram page, Killzone3, and have really been super interested in just everything that you're about as a Marine, but also as an intellectual. Uh, I was an English major in college, so I always... Uh find that like tie-in for to see someone that's very scholarly but also is an infantry marine I, I love that connection and um just super excited for you to join us here tonight so thanks so much yeah that makes uh one of us english majors um i was not oh and it was well, a you- uh, painful learning curve when i got to georgetown to start to study literature so uh yeah i'm, I'm super stoked to be here thanks for having me Yeah. So it's funny because, you know, I started following your page and um, I was really hoping that you were going to join me tonight with a pipe in your mouth, but you haven't. Um, But, you know, I love, and I want to talk more about, you know, you're, you get on and you really, it's, it almost seems like you're just taking what you're thinking and putting it out there, like in the moment. And it's not always super polished. It's just, it's just kind of like what's coming out of your head at the time. And I was reading, you know, background on you and, you know, you, you went to uh, Georgetown, you have a master's from Georgetown, a bachelor's from Loyola. And then I looked that you were actually commissioned in 2008 uh, into the Marine Corps. And I saw that date and it was super interesting to me because it was like, for me, seeing you now, you're you're leading young uh, Marines, and you know you're you're a major in the Marine Corps. And to think, like you entered into the Marine Corps after my brother had already given his life in Iraq, and uh, just that juxtaposition for me was super interesting when I read that. Um, I didn't know when you had entered into the Marine Corps. I I thought you know you were serving at the same time, and. You know, I'd love to start with what drove you to serve. I don't know your your personal background. Is it is it family related? What drove drove you to service? Let's start there. Sure, uh, I'm I'm certain that um, if your brother uh, had survived that deployment, I would have had the distinct pleasure of him being one of my infantry officer course instructors because that was kind of the peer group I think that generally uh, was was the instructor group when I went to TBS. Then when I went to infantry's officer course, we're, we're all guys getting back from 07, 08. And, uh, you know, the the saying at infantry officer's course is he is best schooled who's schooled in the severest of schools. That's a 
Greek guy said that and I just butchered the quote, but, uh, you know, so getting all those guys coming back from 07, 08, uh, Iraq, and then, uh, training me as a brand new second lieutenant, I think I got some extra good training. And so, um, yeah, that was a, that was a special generation there that, that fought when your brother was fighting there in Iraq. And I was very privileged to, to have that tutelage, um, early in my career from that, that group. What drove me to serve was twofold. Um, 9-11 happened. And it was very much, and if not me, then who type of moment. Uh, I thought I didn't, that was the end of the age of innocence, right? I didn't know there were bad people in the world. I uh, didn't know that there were people manning walls on the world to kind of keep us safe. Uh, I did not have a military background. I did not have a desire to serve uh, growing up. You know, I, I just finished up teaching at the Naval Academy for a couple of years and I have all the mids write biographies so that I can do initial counselings on them, and, and many of them will say in their uh, biographical information will say uh, I was five years old at the Miramar Air Show and I and I saw a Marine jet come over an F eighteen and I knew I was going to be a, a Marine fighter pilot someday, <laughs> and I was like I was five years old picking my boogers watching Teenage <laughs> Ninja Turtles like how did you know you were going to be a Marine jet pilot like uh, that was not me. Yeah. Um, but I just came home that day and uh, I just said, I talked to my mom about it and I uh, said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I could, I probably couldn't even name all the branches of the service at the time. Uh, I didn't know what infantry was at the time. I just said, I feel like uh, someone should do something about that. And then um, the other aspect that I think at least the service kind of component for me is, you know, my mom had me when she was 19 uh, did not have a, uh, did not graduate high school, uh, single mom on the South side of Chicago worked very, very hard and made tremendous sacrifice and provided me and my sister, uh, opportunities that she could have never dreamed of for herself. And, uh, I, you know, as the first person to go to college, my family is the first person for all these different opportunities. I felt like, uh, that's, you know, as General Mattis says, America is like a bank, someone's got to make a deposit. And I felt like uh, I had a duty to probably, that was a pretty special thing uh, that I think happened and, and I wanted to pay into it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think I saw, is your mom a police officer? She is, she's a Chicago cop. Uh, well, she retired uh, a couple of years ago after about 27 years. Uh, so you yeah. say you don't, you, you didn't have that like family lineage of service, but you most certainly did. I sure. <laughs> Yeah, my mom's like a big hippie, uh, and she was not too happy uh, about my decision. So really, um, I did have a great example in my mother that that she led by example, and and she was, uh, you know, when we talk about selfless service and sacrifice, uh, she didn't she didn't want to be a cop, but she uh, had two kids, and uh, it was going to pay the bills, and and you know she grew to. Uh, appreciate her job and, and be a great uh, civil servant in our community. Um, but yeah, you're right. Uh, I did have a great uh, example of, of service. Um, but yeah, every time I, so I, I was in college from 04 to 08, as you know, pretty kinetic time. And uh, every time I come home to do some laundry or whatever, I went to school on the north side and then, you know, my mom's on the south side. So I come home and she's like, Thomas, you just, gosh, damn war, da, 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 da. So every time it was like, uh, you know, at first I told her I was going to be a Navy JAG. 
because uh, I was like a big constitutional law nerd. Uh -huh. And then I said, oh, no, I'm going to be a Marine because I don't know about these sailors. And then I got to TBS and I said, I want to be an infantry Marine. And so every time it was like a new battle royale with my mom about uh, my Marine. And then it's been every four years, she goes, okay, you're going to get out now? You did that. You did everything. It's like, yeah, yeah I think I'm going to stick around. It's time. Well, you know, it's interesting too because you know, you talk about you at five years old. I, I mean, I have the picture behind me. It's actually literally right behind my head. I'm pointing the wrong way, but that little red picture right there is Travis. And he made, it's, it's a picture and he had to write below it what he was going to be when he grew up. I mean, he's probably eight in the picture and he wrote, I'm going to be a Marine pilot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so he was the kid that like, he knew, yeah. of course, yeah. you know, we, grew up in a military family. My dad's a retired Marine Corps colonel. So it was, uh, you know, I, I was born at Camp Lejeune. So I, we'll leave it there. But yeah. I um, think uh, your, your interview with General, General Dumford, you said uh, you guys were singing the Marine Corps hymn at age three. Totally. That was, uh, yeah, that yeah. was like the first song I knew all the lyrics yeah. to. So, but I have to tell you, you know, watching my dad's service and then my brother going to the Naval Academy and knowing he was going to be serving in the Marine Corps. Um, there, I had a very different sense of what service was. So like, I understand where your mom was coming from. Had, had Travis come in 2008 and said, I'm going to join the Marine Corps, even growing up in a Marine Corps household, I would have been like, eh, maybe you want to think about that. Like, sure. look at everything that is going on. You know, Travis <laughs> went to the Naval Academy in a peacetime. My dad says every single time he talks to young Marines that, you know, this post 9-11 generation has done more in two years, three years than he did in 30 years of service. And he's not shy to say that. And he truly means it, you know? And so... Um, you know, being the mother of a six-year-old son right now, yeah. like I, I totally get it. I'm, I'm right there. I would not want to see my son entering into, uh, I, I always tell my son, Travis, I would say, you know, you can do a lot of things in the Marine Corps. You can be the cook, you can be in communications, yeah. you know, whatever you like, there's a lot of different jobs, you know, I'm not pushing my kids towards the infantry, but, sure. but I get that. And, and so, you know, 2008 is like totally volatile time. And not only that it's magnified by the media and, you know, in 2007, there's the, the surge. Um, it's, it's a really incredibly dangerous time for anybody that was serving in Iraq or Afghanistan. And um, one of the things for us, you know, I remember the local news every night would run pictures of service members that had given their lives. It was just like, okay, you know, who gave their lives today. And you would see these pictures and these faces and it, they would put them in your living rooms every night and it made things so much more real. And, you know, I, on Sunday morning national news, they would nationally share with you those that had given their lives. And, um, you know, just from that perspective for us, um, looking at you again, you go in in 2008 and you're kind of thrown into the fire for better lack of a word. You're, you know, you're attached to the third battalion, fifth Marines. 
known as the Dark Horse Battalion. And if you followed anything about uh, these conflicts, like the Dark Horse Battalion was one you, you continue to see, I'll still see today, like on Facebook, somebody randomly posting like, pray for the Dark Horse Battalion. They, yeah. you know, they're talking about the losses that happened like 10, but they, they've just gotten the viral post that's been sure. going around for 10 years. Um, but it was, I mean, you were in it right away. And so, you know, talk to us a little bit about what that was like. I, I mean, it had to be, obviously you're going through TBS, you're, you're, you're understanding some of the challenges you're being um, taught by guys that had just gotten back. So I'm sure they're making things pretty real for you, but you know, you get over to Iraq and it's, I mean, it's a whole different drill. Sure. It, it was definitely a, a baptism by fire when we showed up to staying in Afghanistan. I was a platoon commander in Kilo Company. A lot of our training at the time, while it was very good and violent, uh, it was counterinsurgency centric. So it was lots of kind of kissing babies and shaking hands. And I read a book on the way over to Afghanistan um, called Three Cups of Tea. And I thought that I would be having shuras and I thought everybody and uh so you know when I was at Leatherneck which is the last kind of big base that you're at before you fly into your outpost I was quizzing all my squad leaders on how do you say thank you and have a great day <laughs> and uh yeah my first patrol I didn't even have half my platoon out and uh we were in the middle of a complex ambush and um it did not slow down from there so uh in the first hundred days we were in firefights every day, multiple times a day, and uh, the casualties were stacking up, but also uh, we were stacking bodies uh, just as fast, actually significantly faster. So uh, it was it was what you signed up in the Marine Corps to do, though. You know, it, I, I, I wanted an adventure and I wanted a fight and uh, I got both, no doubt. So um, I loved what I was doing and I was grateful to be with the crew that I was in, had some very tough tough days, roller coaster, best days and worst days, best days and worst days. But uh, overall, the most meaningful experience in my life was leading those Marines, uh, Kilo 1st Platoon, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. And so, you know, one of the things that you actually just, um, you just posted last night, and I think, you know, uh, you come back from that deployment and ultimately you're, you're changed as a person. I mean, you- sure are um and and you were posted the other night with with your pipe and it seemed like you were just on a, a little bit of a riff but you started talking about like you know i mean you like to talk about normalizing feelings in in general right um other than just happiness and i think that's awesome that you do that um and especially when you're talking about combat veterans and you know, I'd love to know, A, why that was so important for you. But the other night you were specifically talking and I was laughing because um, uh, Brian Shantosh actually commented on your posts and, and uh, yeah. asked you if you were drinking because you, you were, your tagline was make feeling funky fine. And you were trying to say it and you kept, you kept, you know, you had your pipe make feeling, or maybe you weren't smoking a pipe. I don't think you were. I, I, and yeah, uh, Oh, okay. Make feeling funky fine. And it was, sure. it was pretty interesting because that particular day when you posted that, 
I was having a really crappy day and, um, it was the day after my birthday and I still had people like, you know, texting me, happy birthday. Hope you had a great day. And I'm writing back like, thanks exclamation point, you know, mm-hmm. but I was feeling really crappy and I was just in a, you know, it was in a bad headspace. And sure. I was watching your video and I'm like, yeah, like there's no, like, there's no reason you always have to fake it. Right. Like make feeling funky. Fine. Like hope you had a great day. And eh, you know what? Actually it was just okay. Uh, I ate leftover pasta on the picnic table by myself. Yeah. My husband was with my daughter and sure. my son was being a pain in the butt, but you know, I faked it for the, like, had a great day. Thanks so much. You know? And yeah. so, but I'd love to talk about why that was so important to you, you know, to, to talk about this idea of normalizing feelings in general. And, and it's not the norm, right? It's not the norm for a combat veteran to come back and say, let's talk about our feelings unless, um, you know, we all know there's this a, a overarching stigma within the military of, you know, you got to be super stoic, but you even take it one step further of like, as opposed to just saying like, reach out when you're not okay. You're like, no, let's, let's like talk about this. Let's talk about like generalizing these feelings. So I love that. And um, I'd love to know kind of, what drove you to that place? I know we're like, we're stretching, we're stretching far from make feeling funky fine to you getting back from Afghanistan. But like, I'd love to know how you got to that place. Yep, that was quite a journey. Uh, but I, I do think that uh, it's kind of this knee jerk reaction. And, and speaking of Shantash, she's kind of one of my mentors. Uh, and when I think of the word suffering, and you, you know, you, you talk about suffering well, and uh, he has a podcast that is kind of really how I define and think about the suffering now, but uh, we can touch that later, but you should probably just talk to him about it because he could talk about it much better than I can. Uh, I, I, I think that every time a Marine said, uh, I'm feeling a little bit weird today, we said, oh, oh my God, are you like, okay, Marine? Like we call it a ceasefire red, you know, like everybody stop. This Marine doesn't feel just just happy right now there must be something wrong with him and we the pendulum really swung i felt like it was it was to the point that you you weren't allowed to have any feelings then it was to the point that uh you could have all the feelings and then it was like but as soon as you identify a feeling that isn't hey i am good to go it's then we said oh no let's, we got to get him to behavioral health or we got to get her checked out. And I just want to say like, you know, what a unrealistic expectation to, to, to think that everybody is going to be, and, 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 and it is, you know, it is through the suffering that we do find meaning. And so I, you know, my happiest moments come after my biggest struggles. Right. And so if you were to ask me at some point in that struggle, how are you doing? Probably not great. Uh, but at the end of it, there's a significant reward. And so I just uh, too often, if I post anything other than some moto, let's get the enemy kind of thing, if I'm saying, hey, I'm working through something. And again, I'm very grateful for that. And a couple of people are very genuine and, and, I, I'm, and, and, and it is you know, very blessed to know that I have people watching my six like that and on my flank. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we, we've got to allow our Marines and people in general to be able to say, ah, kind of a shitty day. And it's not like, 
it's it doesn't it's it's like you're still okay you just had a shitty day and so uh i just you know i uh, was yeah i was a little bit on of a a rant i guess <laughs> uh but it is interesting because you talk about like your so your your instagram page is is it am i saying it right kill zone kill, kill zone. zone i'm saying kill zone three but you have yeah. to create uh, for yep. the e so kill zone yep um and you've you've amassed a good amount of followers and you use that platform to talk about military service to talk about war current yep. events but like it kind of cuts through with like a softer side of you. And, you know, I'll, I'll see your posts and your stories about just like, take it to the enemy. And I'm like, you know, I get that side of things, right? But uh, um, for me personally, I more connect with like the stuff that, you know, the f- make feeling funky fine. Like that kind of stuff for me, I'm like, I get that. And I think it's, um, I think it's very, telling that you can as a major in the marine corps as an infantry officer can express those feelings and it's super important too because you can still be that hard marine infantry officer and like you said have a shitty day and be like hey i'm not feeling in the the right headspace right and we can talk about that and it's not some big seismic ordeal right it's not something that it's like there's a there's a difference between this idea of it's okay to not be okay, right? And if you're not okay and you need to tell someone, right? And I think we've done a good job from a national perspective of like, check on, you know, the buddy checks, not just in the military, but, uh, you know, let's make sure we're checking on people. Let's make sure that they're not in a bad place. But there's that in between too. There's that, it's not like you're okay or you're about to do something really bad, right? Sure. There's that that's there's that in between of like, of hey, I'm 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 struggling a little bit here and I got to work through this day, this time period and and you know, I love that you you talk about that. Yeah, to come back to your question, you know, connecting it back to deployment. Uh, I think Killzone the the genesis of Killzone is uh, it's a cap it was a capstone project from my graduate work uh, while I was studying literature at Georgetown and and that was my first time that I really had to think and write about my experiences um, because I went right back to Afghanistan when I got back from 3-5. I went to Afghanistan with first recon and I was a JTAC and it was extreme and I was an advisor to the Afghan forces and it was extremely kinetic again. And then uh, I went to the school of infantry and then I went and I was a company commander and I deployed again. Uh, and, and so it wasn't until I went from 7th Marine Regiment to uh, Georgetown was the first time that I, and plus I had just had a daughter, so I was getting a little soft maybe. Uh, so you couple having a daughter with having, you know, the, the space to think and write. And as I was kind of wrestling with my own moral injuries and my own invisible wounds, I was studying literature, uh, typically Vietnam literature, but I really kind of started with Homer and I was looking at trauma narratives, moral injury and, and kind of warrior archetypes. And, and, and when I think all that starts with Homer, everything starts with the Iliad and the Odyssey, right? And so our first warrior archetype of a veteran is you go berserk, your friend gets killed, you go crazy. And then the next kind of archetype of a veteran is that you can't come home. Whatever happened to you at combat, now Odysseus, right? You can never come home. And then 
you look at all the Vietnam film, look at Rambo, look at Apocalypse Now, right? You're either going berserk or then, or Rambo can't come home, right? And then you look at American Sniper, Chris Kyle, you know, he's, he's sitting in the bar. He talks to his wife. She says, where are you? He says, she says, she said, come home, Chris. He goes, I, I, I can't come home, right? So, you know, 3,000 years later from Homer, we still can't come home. And so what I wanted to study is uh, how can we change this kind of narrative from being veterans are victims, veterans are damaged, veterans are broken to, to something to elevate that maybe to veterans are victors or to maybe that there's just more to our stories um, than, than just this kind of wounded. Uh, and you know, it, what, what I, I call, I started kill zone because it, it's the kill zone is where life's where, where ambushes happen. It's a tactical space where an actual ambush happens. And it really, ties in to what you're doing with this podcast and what you did with the knock at the door. And it's the idea that you know, every human will struggle, as you say, and then uh, and you can put that another way, right? Everybody's going to have a knock at the door. And so what I wanted to get to is, is how can we be more resilient um, on the front end, knowing that that knock is going to come, knowing that the struggle is inevitable, how can we be more resilient and maybe sustain less trauma or less damage when it happens and then how can we start the recovery because the ambush we're going to be in the kill zone we're going to be on that x we're going to get the knock how what are some different pathways to recovery and so i started looking uh at a lot of uh it's dr jonathan shea he wrote achilles in vietnam and he's kind of preeminent scholar on uh, moral injury and with veterans and look at kind of some of the stuff that he had to say and and then just through my studies uh, literature um, and psychology, I kind of put, I, I put kills on together. And so what I would do, and this, again, this is my capstone project at Georgetown for my master's in English. And I would, I would go to the coffee shops and the bars around DC when they'd have an open mic night. And I'd tell a story and I would say, here's a story about some of my ambushes, but I just want you to know that I always would end it with an idea of post-traumatic growth, with an idea of gratitude that I have these scars. And while these scars have told stories tonight, that I am more than just the sum of these wounds. I'm a warrior. And ultimately, uh, I've grown because I've been grateful uh, for what, what's happened and what went into these scars. And, and then that manifested into a social media page uh, where my first like 10 posts are just paragraphs from my speech that I would, what I, that I would give out at, at open mic nights. And then, uh, you know, I, so, so I think it, the page has always been kind of a space to, to talk about mental health and, and, and the veteran experience. And then it's, it's grown. I was teaching literature for two years at the Naval Academy. So I was really focused on leadership, teaching these mids leadership and teaching them literature. And there's a ton of intersection there. And so the page kind of uh, evolved into a leadership and literature page, but I'll always kind of still pivot back to that mental health space, I think. So I, I'd, I'd love to know just the response you would get when you would share your story in an open mic night. I mean, I'm sure that you were one of very few Marines that were getting up on that stage or serving sure. members for that. Yeah, uh, I know, you know, I've written, I started, how, how do I make meaning? I, I make my meaning personally through writing, as I can assume you can maybe empathize with that. And, and so 
as I was making meaning of all my experiences that I had, this is another Shantosh podcast, right? I have packed all the boxes. And so as I start to unpack my boxes after 10 years, uh, I, I, I can only figure out what I feel about this thing through, through writing. And so while I had done a ton of writing, I had not done, I had not put that in, I had not verbalized it. Yeah. And so the first time it was at Dog Tag Bakery and I, it was a mixed group of that's a a friendly crowd though let's let for the for the listeners that's a very friendly crowd it's a a bakery run by veterans so i'm (laughs) i'm imagining you at like an open mic night with a bunch of you know snapping their fingers and then the the marine infantry officer gets up but okay so you're at dog tag bakery go ahead i was in i was in friendly territory if you can say georgetown is friendly territory i was in the friendliest territory i guess um in Georgetown and I started to talk and as I was I told all these again I I hadn't told these stories but I had written about all these stories so many times as I talked I was like what like what's going on like uh my chest is tightening up a little bit and there's a little lump in my throat I'm like whoa this is uh I was not tracking that this is was gonna happen and and I as soon as I finished, I was there with two of my colleagues from Georgetown, two of my English major friends who were both 22-year-old poets, and uh, they're great supporters, and they're part of my tribe, and two of my best friends, but they, like, I, I immediately had to, I had a buddy that was working at the Department of State, and I called him, and I said, hey, meet me down at uh, M Street uh, time now, uh, just had to, something weird happen, and I need a drink, uh, so I think, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of and and how was it received again it was a mixed crowd of, of vets and civilians and yes it, it resonated and I have found that as I shared my story like just like last night Shantash calls me a drunk I wasn't drunk or stoned <laughs> uh but uh well, just knowing Tosh very well like I laughed because I've gotten he hasn't um he hasn't blown me up on a comment on Instagram, but I'll, sure. I'll, I'll do something and I'll get the text. Right. So I'll get the text. Like, what are you doing here? You know? And so I was cracking up when I read that. I'm like, yeah, that's just like him to put up. Yeah. What are you stoned or drunk? What do you mean? Make feeling funky fine. And, yeah. you know, and I thought it was funny because I, when you were put that up and then you put, po- and then he posted that comment, I spent a week with Tosh um, less than a year ago at, at Crooked Butterfly with um, 20 other veterans going through a Spartan leadership program. It was part of our first cohort. And I was like, I want to go experience this. We've been uh, taking veterans to Tasha's ranch for several years now. And all of the employee or our, our staff that would go out there, they'd be like, it's amazing. You got to go out. Like you got to see the magic of Tosh. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to go. So I went, um, last year and, um, I got really sick on about 24 hours in, we did a, um, we, we hiked and it was like a a thousand foot hike and it was super steep. And, and, and I got up to the top and I started to almost have like vertigo and I'm like, Oh my God, I got to get down. Like I'm super dizzy. And then took the van ride back. We got back. I'm sitting in the tent and the room is just spinning. And Um, I start throwing up 
And, you know, people are coming in, they're like, oh, you definitely caught altitude sickness. This is about when it kicks in. And I'm like, all right, well, you know, what do I do to get rid of it? And they're like, uh, you know, well, maybe if you see if we can get these altitude pills or like, you know, tell, or we can get you one of those oxygen, like, you know, oxygen bottles. And I'm like, listen, I feel horrible. I mean, it was, it was terrible. And I finally, I'm lying there, the room spinning. I actually called one of Travis's friends that he served in the Marine Corps with. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, I am like, I've never felt this sick. Uh, what am I going to do? And he's like, listen, just go in and tell Tosh. He's got to have something to help you. And I'm like, I know, but I don't even want to leave the tent. I don't want to be the weak one. Like, I don't want people knowing I'm sick. I was just like, oh, I'm going to pass on dinner tonight. And he's like, just go talk to Tosh. And I like go, I go into Tosh's house. I'm like, hey, and, and I'm on the verge of tears because I'm feeling like super vulnerable that I'm the president of the foundation. And I'm the one that's are like, I'm the one that's already manned out. Like I'm the man down. I'm supposed to be there. Like just observing all of these veterans experiencing the greatness of this week. And, and I'm like, Tosh, like I, I I'm really sick. I, I can't stop throwing up. And I said, you know, I've got bad altitude sickness. And he's like, altitude sickness doesn't exist. Yeah. And I'm like, and I didn't know. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. And I'm just, and I just started crying and I'm just standing in his kitchen, just crying. And, and, and he's, and his one friend, he brought his one friend, Rex, who was a Marine that he served with. And Rex is like, Tosh, I, she's sick. She's got altitude sickness. And he's like, out. And he just kept going, altitude sickness doesn't exist. And I'm like, uh, well, like, well, then something's really going on with me. But he like, and I'm like, then I'm starting to like sweat and panic. And I'm like, well, what's happening then? And he walked me outside and he like, I don't even remember what he said, but he started, you know, he sat down and he basically started telling me that like, you know, I mean, he was equating a lot of what I was feeling in my head. And I'm like, well, you're telling me, um, you're telling me that this doesn't exist, but I'm like, I'm throwing up. So like, is and, and, you know, all of a sudden I'm like, he's like, well, this is a physical manifestation of everything you're feeling and what, and, and I mean, I sat on Anirondacks with him for about 30 minutes and I just kept going, you know, at one point he's like, fine, you want me to take you down? I'll go check you into a hotel right now. Let's go. I'll drive you down the mountain. You won't be at altitude. You'll be fine. And I'm like, well, you know, and I'm like in my head, my head was playing games like, well, okay, maybe what I should do, you know, maybe I should just get down and I won't be sick and I'll come back tomorrow. And he's like, come on, I'll go grab the keys. Let's go. And I knew in the way he was saying it, he's like, you're not going, you know, but he was like testing me. Right. Sure. And I'm like, just going to go back to my room. Right. I'm, uh, and, and I left and I woke up that next day and I was like, and, and it's moments like that. And I've had other moments like that in my life. My husband's like that with me when I start to like freak out, he like, you know, he kind of calls me on my bullshit. I'll be like, I'm panicking. And he's like, no, you're not chill. And that's what I need. That's not what everybody needs. But, um, it was just that that way that he came at me of like altitude sickness doesn't exist. And I'm like, well, you know, it, it actually does. I mean, there's, there's, it, it does exist, but yeah. that's, he almost anticipated what I, he needed to say to me, what I needed to hear at that moment. Right. And so um, I feel like if I would have walked in and he said, oh crap, we got to get, you know, we got to get you going, let's get this. And like, it would have made it 10 times worse. So um, that's just a little beauty of, who Tosh is and, you know, uh, 
but that's, that's leadership. It's knowing your people and knowing the right message, the right way to persuade uh, and the right way to kind of motivate them. And, and, and Tasha is definitely a leader. I think that's an adaption of, uh, there was a Prussian field marshal named Mulkey, I think. And he was uh, doing maneuvers in Norway. And he told his troops that the Arctic is a myth and uh so when they said we can't do this kind of stuff it's it's the arctic it's too cold he said the arctic is a myth and then i used an adapt uh i adapted that to bridgeport and i said hypothermia is a choice uh and altitude sickness yeah i think there's 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 different ways but very much uh it's what the mind will will tell the body um and if you can convince the mind that and and my company had zero marines get hypothermia during that uh, training evolution, whereas every other company had several cases. But uh, yeah, it just altitude sickness doesn't exist and hypothermia is a choice. And uh, what you tell yourself is, is what the body may then believe. Now, when people talk to me about doing, you know, doing things that are an elevated height, I am very quick to say, oh no, I got some issues with altitude sickness. But in that moment, I needed to hear that altitude yeah. sickness is not a thing. For sure. Um, I want to talk to you about uh, switch subjects a little bit and talk sure. to you about something uh, and, you know, something that's uh, a, a super hot button issue today um, with the drawdown in Afghanistan and um, what's happening over there with um, our interpreters that served alongside uh, guys like you. Um, and specifically, you know, you um your interpreter Zach and I'd love for you to kind of on a personal perspective share a little bit about Zach and then I'd love to talk about just your feelings on where we are today um with as much as you want to share um just with what's happening you know the, regardless of how you feel about the withdrawal you know um what type of feelings does it invoke for you, knowing that, uh, you know, the sacrifices that have been made on that soil and, and, and the fact that there are um, men and their families that are being left behind right now and, and there's things that are happening to help try and um, advance their safety, but um, all of those um, things have not been buttoned up yet. So let's start with Zach. Tell us about Zach. Let's start there. Sure. Yeah, trying to get me to walk point in a minefield again, like um, back in uh, saying in Afghanistan. Um, Zach was my interpreter. Uh, again, I was a platoon commander, and he came in right about the same time that I got there, shortly after I got there, at a time that it was very difficult to retain interpreters. Uh, many of them said, peace out, no thanks, not worth it. They also had an advantage that they knew at the time the U.S. had the very high demand for interpreters so that they could pretty much quit and saying it and probably still be employed uh, when they got back. Um, so many of them said, no, no, thanks. I'm out. Uh, many interpreters, we were in a Pashto speaking part of the country and many of them were Dari speaking. And so many of them didn't really know the local dialect or they weren't very good at English. And I mean, not to judge them because their English was much better than my Dari. Right. But, uh, so that there was either they weren't just like very skilled interpreters uh, at the time they couldn't get interpreters 
to even get on a helicopter to come to Sangin. Um, and so they would tell them they were going somewhere else. They'd get off the helicopter. They said, nope, this is Sangin, uh, and get right back on the helicopter. And so when Zach came in, uh, he came in with a couple other guys and he was 19, uh, kind of, you know, well built his English. Uh, it was very solid. And I said, Oh, uh, this is, and so I kind of, you know, quickly ushered him into the first platoon area and, uh, like, kind of hit my guy. This is my yes. guy. <laughs> because if you, you know, the other platoons know that you've got, everybody's kind of, you know, do the same thing, get, get a good interpreter. And if the other platoons find out or, or, or worse, if higher finds out, right. The company commander knows, or the battalion knows they're going to yoink. Uh, and so you got to like, I'm like, no, this guy sucks. He's the worst. Uh, but I guess we'll, we'll stick with him. But, uh, right away, Zach and I, hit it off uh, because he was uh, fit, he was uh, skilled at his job, and he was highly motivated, which it is, you could not say that about uh, many of the interpreters that we, we worked with. Many of the interpreters, as soon as we would take contact, would literally just lay down on their back, look up at the sky. <laughs> just wait for the fight to be over. Uh, Zach would, you know, be right where I was at. I always had two people within one arm's reach of me, uh, my interpreter and my radio operator. And uh, Zach was, and I was always at the point of friction. Uh, I was always at the place where the heat was the hottest and uh, Zach was right there with me. So uh, I could tell a couple, you know, stories where Zach was, was really special. Um, we were, so, I mean, Sangin was a minefield, improvised explosive devices, IEDs were everywhere. And we had to move in single file line because we, we all followed an engineer who was sweeping up front. And uh, we were moving very slowly into a village. Uh, we knew this area had a lot of IEDs around this village and Zach intercepted a radio transmission from the Taliban who said, we see the Marines, we're gonna start the ambush. And Zach says, sir, you need to hurry up. You need to get to the village. They're going to, and I'm like, Zach, I'm moving as fast as the engineer can move. We're walking through a minefield here. And he's like, well, screw this. By the time you guys get there, he'll be gone. So Zach just takes off running on an uncleared lane into the village, tackles a guy who had the radio, who was about to initiate the ambush. Uh, on a separate occasion, I had a triple amputee and we were still under very heavy fire. And uh, you know, Zach picks up the rifle gets into the security posture with my guys and, and starts to kind of return fire, something that we would never trust uh, a different interpreter to do. Um, and and he, he was being threatened. Uh, we, we had killed a guy and we took the guy's radio and the guy's AK off of, of him. And so the Taliban knew we had their radio. And so they came up on the radio and they said, we know who you are. We know what province you're from. We know, and they said everything about him. They said, we're going to kill you. So this guy has been getting death threats from serving with the U.S. since October 2010. Uh, so he stuck with us all the way to the end. You know, he, he got in the helicopter uh, just a, a day prior to us departing um, the area of operations. And it was, I mean, he was one of my Marines. He was a brother. He fought and bled. Uh, right alongside us and made sacrifices and you know went well well above and beyond the duty of translating you know it was yeah. um, and 
we stayed in contact throughout the years. He went back to his province and was working with I, what, I, what I would guess would be Army SF guys. And um, we started his application in 2015. We submitted it and they said, you can't, your uh, Department of State kicked it back and they said, no, you don't have enough uh, verified employment time, your time with the Marines. We can see your contract here nine months when you're with third battalion, fifth Marines, get some, right? Uh, but we don't, we, you need the paperwork from the time that you were with the Army. And unable to secure that, I think a lot of that was probably cash work. I think um, the contracting agency that he worked through is defunct. Uh, which is a pretty typical story. And Zach, like I would say tens of thousands of other interpreters. And then when you extrapolate that to their families, hundreds of thousands of others uh, are in a very, very similar boat where they've been unable to advance through this SIV uh, program. So there's a program called the Special Immigration Visa Program. And so it's good that we see some headlines about a couple hundred getting to Virginia. Uh, I think what's under the waterline is probably the iceberg. And uh, I think I have received hundreds of messages from interpreters. There's Facebook groups with these interpreters where you could see thousands of these posts where people are in a similar situation. And to me, it's very unfortunate that uh, we maybe did not pay attention to history as close as, as we could have, uh, there are probably some historical examples uh, that we did not use our very extended timeline. We could have probably used it a little bit more judiciously. And, uh, and the fact that, I, that this guy has verified nine months of service from an HR letter from his employer who we contracted through, he has you know, 100 Marine testimonies. And then that's not sufficient to say, you know, uh, and even if that wasn't sufficient, we, he, he did meet the terms of his service. You have to have two years working with the US government. He did, he served over two years. And so this program is for people who served and uh, with US forces and subsequently faced a threat. He meets all the criteria, but because of some minutia, uh, we can't seem to advance the needle on this. We had a Chicago Sun-Times article. We, had, we were on the cover of the New York Times. We were just on the Rachel Maddow show. We're in a dozen other publications. Senator Durbin talked directly to the Secretary of State. It's on record asking about Zach's case. He says, I've got a fraction. Uh, Senator Duckworth uh, has offered her support. And, and so, and a number of other congressmen have, have and so I've I'm spent hundreds and hundreds of hours now uh, devoted to this issue, talking to just about anybody who will listen and then, you know, last week, we, we kind of did a status check with Department of State of where's Zach's application, and it is literally says the same thing that it said five years ago. And so it's uh, frustrating and disheartening, and um, we had to make a lot of moves. He, he was in a province that was completely overrun by the Taliban. I, talking to people on the ground there, I said, what are the odds, you know, is is anybody going to tell him to leave there? Is, is anybody going to go get him? Let's say he does get approved miraculously. Is, and they basically said, if he doesn't get to Kabul, he's not getting out. And so getting him from his province that he was in and his family's got four kids, a wife, getting them to Kabul was very expensive. 
Uh, I started a GoFundMe. For, uh, I was hoping to use most of that money to help him resettle one day. And instead, I've been using that money to you know, help him get across the country and hide him while he's in where he's at. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been frustrating. And then my, my thoughts in regards to the, to the conflict in general, you know, the, the, the Marines, we won uh, our battles and uh, Marines will always win our battles. And, and uh, we're, we're not victims. We were doing what we wanted to do. Um, and I am so grateful for my opportunity to fight alongside the men that I fought alongside. I'm, and I'm, you know, I've never, again, it's, I've never had a more meaningful period of my life. And so it was the most rewarding experience. And so ultimately I am thankful for my time that I spent uh, there. Uh, when you lose the war, there's a, so I, I teach at, at the Naval Academy. I taught, um, I taught plebe English, but I also taught an elective uh, called literature war. And I taught a, a, a special topics course that I designed called reimagining Vietnam. And so my, my, my kind of specialty area is, is Vietnam literature. And I like to pair the things they carried by O'Brien with um, this book called uh, The Sorrow of War by Bao Nin, who is a Vietnamese uh, author. And he fought with the NBA. And at the end of the war, uh, you know, finally he's and he was there from the beginning of the war to the end of the war. And, and one of the soldiers turns to him and says, oh, you must you must be so happy we want. And he says, you know, no, like I'm not uh, there. All my friends are dead. The woman who I loved is gone. My hometown is ruined. You know, there there is there is no winning. It's just the sorrow of war, which is the title, right? And so uh, ultimately, um, I think I will leave it at that. That's kind of uh, the overall kind of sentiment. Yeah. So let's take it back to Zach and start there. Sure. You know, I think just hearing that story, not every Zach has a Tom Schumann. Right. So you yeah. think of like, that's, that's what stuck out to me, you know? And so you think of, like you said, the tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands with their family, because if an interpreter is targeted, so is their family yep. and, you know, that are there. Um, I, I will say I shared a post because um, Travis was very close with his interpreter um, who, um, Travis worked to get him over here and, and he, he now lives here. Um, he lives in Florida. He's doing extremely well, but he was never able to go back to his family after he served, um, with Travis's MIT team. And so, um, uh, he was one of several siblings. His dad was a, a doctor over there. Um, and he never, or a dentist, his dad was a dentist, but never made it back to see his family because it was too dangerous. And so um, I don't know what the requirements were at that stage of the game in, you know, 2006, 2007, but um, I know uh, Mustafa had shared a, um, a letter when he came and visited us that Travis had written to get his temporary visa to get him over here. Sure. Um, and, uh, but I think of the idea for me, just having that connection with 
uh, Nick, as he's more affectionately known living in Florida now, but having that connection with him and thinking of how you're feeling, knowing that Zach is still over there and you're just tied to bureaucratic bullshit. I mean, what else are you going to call it? Right. That, that he can't get over here. And, um, and the fact that, you know, for me, it's about honoring our commitments as a country. And if we have men and women who are serving alongside our men and women, um, and we made that commitment to them up front. This is not, oh, they came to serve. There was like, there was always a commitment to take care of them. And I think that's an important um, point to, to get across. Like there was always that commitment. If you serve, we're going to take care of you. If you serve as an interpreter with the U.S. military, you will be taken care of. And so um, one of the things I've continued to say is we are not honoring our commitment as a country. And that outside of these personal stories, like that's what hurts the most for me. Um, You know, and I hope that I hope we can do better. I think there are um, I, I, I love that. Uh, Senator Durbin and and Duckworth are, you know, throwing their support. There's been others that have thrown their support, um, senators and congressmen and women. I think there are some that are staying silent on the issue. Um, And I'm just going to go off on my soapbox for a minute, Tom. But there are some others that are that have been silent on the issue or and and these are men and women that actually served overseas. And because it probably doesn't um, benefit the narrative right now. Um, and that's what kind of gets me that, that it doesn't benefit the narrative right now of, you know, the fact that we're out of Afghanistan and that's, that's great. You know, you, we've drawn down, you guys have done your job. Um, and like you say, it's, it's not, we won the war. It's the sorrows of war, right. Uh, for everyone. But, but that is overshadowing this idea that like, you have to stand up for what is right. And while it may dampen a popular sentiment uh, of uh, pulling the troops out of Afghanistan and celebrating that for what it is, no, there's a black cloud over that whole thing. And if you are too cowardice to stand up and, and say that because you don't want to shift that narrative and change that narrative, um, I say shame on you. So, um, I'll leave it at that, but um, keep pushing this issue. It's super important. Keep sharing Zach's story. Um, and, and I think, and I said to you before we, we started recording, you know, it's so important for people to hear these personal stories. Um, and because it's very easy to say, there's thousands of Afghan interpreters that are, you know, that are, that are going to be killed by the Taliban. But when you hear the story of Zach, that makes it real for people. Um, I'd never talked about, um, Nick before, uh, I was all, I, I actually had texted him. I'm like, Hey, is it okay if I share your picture? Like, and he, you know, he was like, sure. You know, and, and, uh, um, but I'd never shared that story. I, you know, and I, I, I still stay in contact with him today. Um, and, uh, you know, when my dad went back to Iraq, um, uh, my dad went to Iraq, um, uh, several years after Travis was killed because he wanted to meet with the Iraqis that Travis served with. And I think that is a also um, 
under acknowledged aspect of these conflicts. Um, I know for us to hear the stories, not just of the brotherhood with the Marines he served with, um, but the brotherhood that, and Travis was part of a MIT team. So he was embedded with the Iraqi army. Um, but to hear the stories of the brotherhood he, he created with the Iraqi army, um, it's something that those stories aren't, aren't getting told. And, and Travis's story is just one of many that formed these types of relationships with the men and women over there. So um, that would be a good movie. Yeah, I don't think I could say it better uh, than uh, how you kind of summarize um, the situation right now. Uh, I, as, as an advisor, I, again, I went back on my second tour when I was with Recon and I was an embedded advisor and I lived with the Recon platoon of Afghan army. Uh, for several months on a remote outpost outside of Marja. And so, yeah, I, I, whether I, I mean, I don't know about anything about movies, but maybe that's a good idea. But the other part, I know for sure you were, uh, you, that was a spot on assessment and better. Well, so. I'll tell you a good, I'll tell you a good story. Um, my dad said that, uh, you know, my dad, uh, Marines that Travis served with after he was killed, you know, they did a memorial service in Iraq. And um, so, you know, wherever they are, they're in at the base and um, all the Marines are in there. And um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel who shared with us the story, he said, you know, we're in there and um, we're, you know, guys on Travis's MIT team are getting up. They're talking about Travis and out of nowhere, like, the back doors bust open and like the double doors open and all of these Iraqis start coming in. He said to the point where I actually got nervous. And he said, I put my hand on my hip on my gun. And I was like, wait, what's going on here? And in comes the Iraqi Colonel. And he said, they're all following him. And he just walks up to the podium with Mustafa, with Nick, with the interpreter. And we have it on video and it's incredible because the, the memorial was videotaped, but this Iraqi colonel gets up and starts talking about Travis and talking about that he was a warrior and he was a brother to the Iraqis. And um, Lieutenant Colonel said, you know, in, in all my memorial services, you know, never has an Iraqi colonel come and, and shared his, you know, shared his thoughts on a American, on a Marine, you know, for that, that had given their life. And he said, you know, it was just a testament to, um, again, these bonds that were formed, um, between, you know, the Iraqis and, and the Marines over there. And, and again, same thing happening, uh, in Afghanistan as well. So, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent. Yeah. That was I, a great story, Ryan though. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk to you a little bit about outside of, um, teaching young midshipmen and shaping their minds with leadership and, um, serving in the infantry in the Marine Corps, you also have started your own nonprofit and um, named after uh, a, your fallen uh, service member. Tell us a little bit about that. And I saw we actually just did something together. I saw somebody had posted like TMF and, uh, and uh, PB Abate. Uh, yes. Yes. Yep. Uh, working together. So uh, share with us uh, about the work you're doing. Sure. Uh... Again, I, I studied 
kind of moral injury and I, I studied uh, some of the mental health stuff from an academic perspective during my graduate program. And then I, I taught some of that. I worked some of that kind of uh, the academic literature in, into some of my classes as well. And so it's, it's something that I've been studying and thinking about and living, you know, anecdotally uh, for, for a long time. Um, in 2020, uh, April of 2020, one of my Marines, Corporal McLeod, uh, passed away. And it wasn't the first Marine that I've lost uh, after the conflict. You know, uh, one of the Marines that I was on the advisor team uh, had committed suicide. Uh, that was particularly tough. He was actually an instructor at Quantico. He's a captain, pilot, and had two kids. Uh, so that one was, it was definitely tough. And, and there, are, there are several others um, that, Corporal Justin McLeod was tough because he, he was at the end of his uh, service contract and I had convinced him to extend and uh, he had just had a son and that's why he was going to get out and I said well could you talk to your wife and he came back and said you know what sir you're my family too and I'll extend a month later uh, he's a triple amputee and one of my Marines is handing me his fingers because his, his arm his arm was blown off and I put those fingers in my cargo pocket and uh, you know end up having one of the most difficult conversations in my life to try to help him find the will to live to, to get back to his son and um, he fought and he made it uh, but as a triple amputee he uh, required hundreds of surgeries and was always in and off of the meds and in and out of the hospital and, and then you know so so april he loses that battle and you know, I had 19 casualties in my platoon of 35, three killed in action. So I've, I've written the letters and I've made the phone calls. Um, but that night I had just put my daughter to bed. It was late Friday night. You know, I put, put my daughter to bed and, uh, you know, so I'm singing her songs and saying our prayers. And then I come in and, 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 and so I, you know, I, I, when I, when we talked about, we started talking about kind of resiliency and recovery because everybody's going to get the knock. Right. And everybody suffers. And, and I, and, and, you know, the mids, cause I talk about being in the yellow. So Colonel Cooper came up with this thing called the color code and the yellow means like you have you, your, your situational awareness is up that you're, you're a fighter in a ring. And, and what I would say is like, life is the arena, right. And you're going to get hit, you know? And so when I know I'm going to get hit, I put my gloves up because I, I, you know, I expect that there's a knock is coming. I expect that as something that's going to attempt to make me suffer. I expect that that kill zone or that ambush. And so I make myself a harder target. And um, my mids always say, well, is there any ever a time that you kind of come out of that yellow zone where, and, and I, uh, you know, many probably combat veterans can attest is that you kind of, you stay there, right? This idea of being pretty vigilant. Uh, and I say, you know, the one time I really kind of come out of that is, is when I put my daughter to bed uh, because whenever I'm out or doing whatever, I'm never like, fully present you know I'm still thinking about some other things and but I I know how sacred and how special these fleeting moments are with my daughter and so whenever I'm putting her to bed I try to be wholly present which then makes you vulnerable to you know what what's on the outside world um and so you know I just do that and I come back in and I see my phone and says hey sir can give me a call and uh it's one of McLeod's best friends. And he says, you know, I heard this. And then, so then you got to, you, you know, I call his mom, call uh, his family, his brothers. And, 
And then I got to call 35. I got to do, you know, roll call with, with Kilo first platoon and um, not, not in the, what wasn't, wasn't in the, uh, I was in a vulnerable space kind of when that happened. And so, but either way, I have a duty and obligation to lead. And, uh, you know, to me, leadership extends well beyond when you're actually, when we have a, a commander subordinate relationship, leadership to me is a lifelong commitment in and out of uniform. And so I'll always be first platoon commander. And, uh, and, and so I, I make the, I make the calls and then, uh, Less than 30 days later, one of my sergeants from when I'm a company commander kills himself. And then one of my Lance Corporals from when I was a company commander killed themselves. And so three, three suicides in 30 days. And when was, when was this? April, 2020. Okay. And I think I said, okay, you know, again, it just comes back to, this is really a model that I've lived by and that your brother emulated, right? It's just like, if not me, then who, right? If, I couldn't 9-11 happened I said okay I someone's got to do something about that and I this this is happening and I said it's time to walk point on this uh whatever is out there I well actually let me do my research you know it's first thing I said let's let's define the problem you know as an academic these days I say let's do the research let's define the problem and as I read through all the VA suicide reports, it keeps saying that the leading proximal cause, I read this 2016, 17, 18, you know, uh, and it says the leading proximal cause of veteran suicide are feelings of disconnectedness and isolation. Okay. So that makes sense that when a Marine is vulnerable, when they're, when they're disconnected or isolated, meaning their flanks are open, right? Or, or, or their six isn't covered. That's kind of when they're at, you know, high risk. Additionally, uh, troops are most vulnerable in their first year of transition. Uh, additionally, it's nearly two times as many non-combat veterans commit suicide as combat veterans. I did not expect to come across that uh, data point and that there's uh, no correlation between combat and veteran suicide. I said, okay, so if we know the troops, uh, when they're disconnected and isolated, that's when they're at the highest risk. And if we know it's in that first year, what is what's out there that's getting uh, everybody into into a tribe? What's out there that's getting everybody connected and everybody into community into feeling purposeful? And what's out there that is doing that before the troops transition? You know, so it's let's get how what is out there that's left a bang? What's out there that's preemptive or proactive? Rather, and, and what I found is that. Um, about 98% of that resources were allocated to about 2% of the population. Uh, most of the resources are dedicated to the populations who have sacrificed the most, uh, our wounded, uh, our special forces, and our gold star families. And to me, 100%, that's where you start. You know, that's where you, that should be the main effort. That's where you allocate uh, and that's, that's the immediate need. And these are people that pay the highest price. And of course, these are, this is where we start with all these kind of veteran service organizations and resources. It seems generally that's where we stopped. And uh, I, and, and, and so, you know, there's about 18 million veterans, um, 1.2 million active duty. And, and most of them don't rate to be a part of these, uh, all these organizations that are, uh, that are out there. And so of course they feel disconnected, of course they feel isolated. And, and, you know, 
I'm a combat wounded Marine. I, I can check all the boxes, right? But what if I don't want to come in and say, hi, I'm Tom and I'm an alcoholic, right? I don't want to come in and define myself by my wounds, right? I am likely disabled. I likely might have some PTS. I am like, I am combat wounded. I, and, but what if I just want to say, hey, I'm Tom and I feel more comfortable uh, when I'm with a, a tribe of people who have a common, shared common experience. And to me, you know, it's not the combat deployment that matters. To me, it's the idea that at some point you raise your hand and you wrote a check up to and including your life. And that is the cooks and the comm Marines, as you, su- you suggested, because if you look back through our nation's conflicts, there are many cooks and many comm Marines who paid that sacrifice, right? And if you look at our future conflicts, the potential is still very high that the cooks and the comm Marines will, and, and the Air Force admin clerks and the Navy submariners, everybody is going to have an opportunity to have that check called. And, uh, and, and so I wanted to say, let's get rid of all these barriers to entry. Let's get rid of all these boxes that everybody has to check. And let's start an organization where if you served, you're in. And a lot of this is kind of, you know, if, if you've read Sebastian Younger's tribe, right, it's, it's very tribe vibes here. And, and that's, that's intentional. And, uh, and, and, and so what am I into? I'm into literature, right? I'm into going outside and walking around. I'm an infantry marine, you know, of course. So I, I like to walk around outside and I like to read. I'm pretty generally boring. I didn't want to make the organization around just my interests. You know, I said, uh, let's make it, let's make this an interest-based organization, but to uh, continue to expand our inclusive model, our inclusive paradigm, uh, let's say that whatever you're into will build a club around it and, and so you know we have so our, our we, we started with a hunting club a fight club which is uh jujitsu a strength club powerlifting and and uh olympic lifting a, a book club i did get my book club in there um and but i mean right now uh september 11th we've got a music club uh retreat we just had a surf club retreat last weekend we now have a garden club we have a yoga club our history club went to antietam last week you know so it, it's the idea that uh, you don't have to be, I'll meet you where you're at. What, what are you into? And, and that's where I'll, I'll go and I'll build the structure uh, around you. And, and, and so the first thing I, as I, I did, I, I said, is there a gap? Yes, there's a gap. There, there, there are, there's not many resources out there that are putting veterans in community, getting them connected, regardless of combat, wounded, whatever, that just says, hey, you served, you're on active duty, you're a reservist, you're a National Guard, you've been out for five minutes or five years or 15 years, you, you are no do, no fees, no weird passwords, no secret handshakes, just your service, you're in. And so I said, I think there is maybe a gap here. Uh, and so I said, let's go get 350 acres out in Montana, because I believe that good things happen outdoors and outside. And I think that the idea, and I, and I set up a, a patrol base there, patrol base Abate named after Sergeant Matt Abate, Navy cross recipient, one of my snipers, uh, one of the most legendary guys I know, and I'm trying to build a legendary community here. And so, uh, and I wanted, 
everything we do to honor, to honor somebody uh, and, and to get that, because right, it's tribe and purpose. Our purpose is to continue to live lives of honor, lives of character, lives of sacrifice, which obviously there's a lot of crossover there between uh, your mission and your purpose. And, and uh, but I do believe that having a physical space, not a conceptual space or a theoretical space, but an actual physical terra firma dirt that every veteran and every active duty service member across the country right now can claim. It's not my patrol base, you know, it's your patrol base. If you serve, if you are serving, it's your patrol base. And so, you know, that, that Air Force, that Army logistics person says, wait, you're saying I'm just a specialist, I'm, I'm a national uh, guard, you know, I'm like, yes, actually it's your patrol base. Like me, I qualify. And what I found is everybody kept telling me this, this idea that we're so programmed that our, our, that, that unless you killed Osama bin Laden or unless you left a limb on the battlefield that, you know, your service wasn't, that serving isn't like significant. And I would argue that it is a significant uh, commitment to serve. And so everybody would kind of rebuttal with this. Well, I was just, or I'm just, yeah. And I said, bullshit, you are just, you served it matters. And so where everybody's trying to put this, make it a competition or make it hierarchical, I said, it's your patrol base. I'm telling you, it's yours. And you don't have to check any, you're, you're in, you made it, come on out. And so we do, we've done four retreats out there. Um, we'll continue to do uh, retreats out there every month. Um, and like you said, there's that magic out at uh, the Crooked Butterfly Ranch. I can attest that, um, not, and not, and my testimony is obviously biased, I think, but there's been a, a, a about 50 uh, members who have gone through this summer and their testimonies is that, you know, most impactful weekend of their life, uh, life-changing. And, and so what is happening out there is magical and people are going out there and they're filling a sandbag and they're getting in that tribe and then they leave. And I asked them to leave and be point men, to go walk point in their communities. And so it's really this idea that the, what we do at the patrol base is to get out and, and to, to get into our communities to continue to serve. And so when I initially conceived the patrol base about that, I thought, oh, we'll be the service, we'll do the service component. Then I realized, oh, there's really great organizations like Travis Manion Foundation who are already in that space. And what if we just say, hey, great organization that knows the community, that knows the key players, that's doing the great work. We're not here trying to reinvent the wheel. We're just people of service who are looking for a venue uh, to serve. Can we yeah. join you? And so, uh, you know, and, and, and to me, I'm a narrative guy, right? And so I'm an English guy. And so this narrative that veterans are damaged and broken and entitled or looking for handouts. And I said, no, no, that's not us. We're actually men and women of service, of character, Travis Manning Foundation, and we are going out and we're going to continue to serve, you know, and so we, and, and, and so we aren't looking for handouts. We want to get, we want to continue to sacrifice in or out of uniform. And, and so we have all these regional chapters. We've got almost 40 regional chapters around the country. And, and, and to me, while I can't bring everybody out to the patrol base in Montana every weekend, you can return to base anytime at Patrol Base Abate Chicago or Patrol Base Abate New York or Patrol Base Abate Southern California. And that, that's enduring, it's sustainable, and you can kind of connect with that local tribe and then get that feeling. And, 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 and you, more than anybody, know how special that is when people are back in service and they feel that purpose again. And uh, so that's what we're doing. That's who we are. Well, I love it. The model works. I can tell you from experience, you yeah. know, it's, it's about creating that community and 
you know, we always say at, at TMF that our organization does not run without the veterans that are running our programs. Like we, we don't, we don't serve veterans. Our veterans serve others. Right. And so our organization does not exist if we don't have veterans leading the charge. And so we are constantly trying to shift that narrative. Like we are not a traditional VSO where we're saying, this is what we can do for you. We're saying, Hey, you want to be a part of our organization? This is what we need from you to do. Um, so I love it. Um, and great work. I mean, it kind of just popped up out of nowhere and, um, you know, it was a lot of work. Well, exactly. I know it was a lot of work, but this idea that like you've been able to grow and, and do what you've done, um, in such a short amount of time, um, it's pretty incredible. And, and I think a testament to, um, what you're trying to accomplish. And I hope that we can, uh, find some more opportunities to continue working together. Um, all right. I've kept you for too long, but I'm going to finish up with two questions. The first, uh, you know, as a lover of literature, I've got to ask you, um, if you had to pick one book, what would it be? And it's Matterhorn. Thing, Matterhorn. Okay. There you go. I was going to say, it doesn't have to be your favorite book, just one book, Matterhorn. Okay. You could unpack Matterhorn. I, I, I've had conversations with Carl Melantis, and every time I think I know anything about Matterhorn, I could spend 30 seconds talking to him and realize, oh, no, I actually don't know anything. I need to reread the book. All right, Matterhorn, if you haven't read it, go read it. And um, and then the last thing, and you've touched on this a little bit, but um, this idea, like I'm with you. Um, I, and I think that was one of the things that we set out to do when when Amy, Heather and I wrote The Knock at the Door. It was this idea of, you know, part share our stories, but on another level to share the lessons we learned and how to be best prepared when you do receive that knock on the door. Not if you receive that knock on the door, but yeah. when, because yeah. every single person will. And, um, but there is also a, a theory of how you live a resilient life, right? And, and it's probably harder to put into practice if you haven't dealt with a lot of adversity in your life, but each and every one of us can um, live a resilient life. So I want to know um, what living a resilient life looks like for you. Yeah, I, I think you, you get to the point where it's, I'm a big Stockdale guy. And so I, I wasn't until I got to the Naval Academy. And now I'm a big, big Stockdale guy. And, and he lived it better than anybody. Um, you know, he, he talks about when he was a POW and he heard a wall tap and, and he thought he was so thankful to be alive and he'd never been so grateful. And you can, you know, you can look at uh, Solstenstein in the Gulag uh, Archipelago. Uh, you can look at Paul in prison. What do all these people kind of, uh, what, what helps them be so resilient? And I think it's an ability to, uh, the Stokes have a term for it, amor fate, right? To love your fate, which the Marines also have a term for it. It's called embrace the suck. You know, and so your ability to stop being a victim to situations, to stop surviving situations and to find a way to thrive. And, you know, uh, Solstenstein says, you know, or, 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 uh, well, this is a Stockdale essay talking about Solstenstein's uh, time in, in the Gulag. And he says, 
thank you prison, right? And so when you get to the place where you can approach the adversity and the struggle with gratitude, uh, that is where the growth is. And I think that, that, that really kind of um, is fundamentally tied to loving your fate, uh, your ability to uh, embrace the suck and, and, and stop surviving and, and, and figure out a way to start thriving through that adversity and th through the struggle. Thriving, we talk about that a lot at the Travis Manning Foundation. You know, we, we, we talk about it. Uh, we talk about thriving as the combination of MRE. You know, we, we always like to use nice uh, Marine Corps acronyms, but wow. meaning relationships and engagement. And that's how we kind of break it down. But um, so important, you know, sur surviving is one thing, but thriving is another. And I think we all need to look for how we can thrive as individuals. You know, that's, that's the ultimate achievement that, um, that we can hope for. So Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Um, awesome conversation. And uh, thanks for all that you're doing. Um, if you uh, are not following Killzone on Instagram, uh, you should go and search it right now. Um, we'll put the links to, uh, to all Tom's, uh, social media handles and everything he's doing and, uh, PB Abate on, um, our YouTube. Uh, thanks for joining us for another episode of the resilient life podcast. Please make sure to like subscribe and share with your friends, Tom. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me.